Welcome to Skim This. This week's news has been hard to swallow, especially after Tuesday's attacks in Atlanta, which have hit a lot of us really hard. We'll start the show with a look at why this story hurts on so many levels. Then we'll take a trip around the world, touching on stories from Japan, the European Union, and Alaska, which is apparently a place diplomats like to meet. Then, if you've been hearing immigration coming up lately, we'll break down why that is, whether the U.S. has a crisis at the southern border, and what's being done about it. And we'll close things out by unpacking why all sorts of funny-sounding investments are so hot right now. We're here to make you smarter, and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. This has been a gutting week of headlines from both the U.S. and the U.K. that have exposed just how unsafe women are around the world. Let's take a look at what happened in the U.S. first. On Tuesday, a gunman killed eight people at three spas in or near Atlanta, Georgia. Six of the victims were women of Asian descent. Authorities arrested the suspect, a 21-year-old white man, and charged him with eight counts of murder. The news has rattled the entire country, especially after major cities saw a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes last year. Here was Georgia State Rep B. Wynn on CNN. We're going to wait and see what happens, but, you know, I still am very firm in my position that, one, he targeted three Asian businesses, six Asian women are dead, and you simply cannot separate the fact that there's hypersexualization of Asian women. It is interlinked to sex working industry, and you cannot separate the misogyny, the racism, and the gender-based violence. One reason the news from Atlanta is causing so much pain and public outcry is that it contains so many disturbing elements that we've been seeing come up, all packaged into one event. The first is that it's a story of gender-based violence in which most of those murdered were women. Authorities said the suspect claimed to have a sexual addiction and that the spas were a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. The second element here is that there have been increased attacks against Asian Americans, especially in the past year. A recent report found that hate crimes against Asian Americans in major cities increased by nearly 150% in 2020. So far, law enforcement in Georgia hasn't called this a hate crime, which communities are calling total BS. Especially because, according to the Washington Post, the businesses that were targeted were known for employing Asians, and because six of the eight people murdered were Asian. And finally, this story exposes obvious discrepancies in policing between how white and non-white Americans are treated by law enforcement. The gunman responsible for Tuesday's attack was taken into custody unharmed. And a day later, one of the officers investigating this case minimized the crime during a press briefing saying the gunman had, quote, a really bad day. Those statements have now caused outrage around the country, with people saying this points to larger systemic issues with the U.S. police. And while some of the elements of what happened in Atlanta are unique to the U.S., many of them are not and have been coming up in other countries over the last few weeks. Over the weekend, police in London forcefully shut down a vigil in memory of Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old woman who was abducted and likely murdered as she was walking home earlier this month. Everard had been walking home around 9.30 p.m. along well-lit streets and had called her boyfriend during parts of that walk. And that left a lot of women, like London resident Izzy Kaplan, feeling like there's nothing we can do to stay safe. 
it's that wider issue of safety and the fact that you can't walk home alone without potentially something happening. And if something happens, there's still the potential that you'll get blamed for it yourself. What happened to Everard was an extreme example of the types of experiences that women have every day. And the insult to injury that many of us are feeling about Everard's murder, the attacks in Atlanta, or so many other stories we keep seeing, is that women are often told to change their behavior as the solution, like walking with keys in your knuckles or calling a friend on the walk home, as opposed to governments and communities doing their part to make things safe for all women. And that even when legal changes occur, like changing hate crime laws or outlawing misogyny, women are left feeling like those changes ultimately aren't enough. These types of stories leave us feeling discouraged and angry, but talking about how we're feeling can help. Since we know people may need all kinds of resources right now, we've included a range of links in our show notes. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, on Wednesday, a court in Japan ruled that it was unconstitutional to ban same-sex marriages. Here's the context. Japan has never allowed same-sex marriage, but back in 2019, three same-sex couples sued the government, citing pain from not being able to legally marry. And this week, the judge reportedly said, you might have a point, because the constitution also says you can't discriminate based on race, creed, sex, social status, or family origin. And sexual orientation, like race or family origin, isn't a choice. While the judge's decision didn't result in compensation for the couples, activists believe this week's court ruling could lay the groundwork for legislation that would allow same-sex marriage, which would make Japan the 30th territory in the world to do so. Okay, next headline. Relations between the United States and China will face a new test as officials from both sides meet in Alaska. Here's what's going on. On Thursday, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with his Chinese counterpart for their first face-to-face meeting, and they picked Anchorage, Alaska as the venue. The meeting was a chance for the U.S. and China to start figuring out what kind of relationship they want to have in the Biden era. And while we don't know much about what went down, it's safe to say they've got quite a lot to work through on everything from human rights issues to trade disagreements. Cue way too many bad jokes from journalists covering this Alaskan summit. The discussions are expected to be frosty. Can these meetings lead to the much needed thaw? An icebreaker to thaw increasingly tense relations. While President Biden is reportedly looking to treat China like a partner in tackling some issues, like North Korea, so far he's maintained tough US sanctions and has continued to speak out on China's treatment of religious minorities. So this relationship could stay chilly for a while. Ugh, come on, guys. Next headline. A woman has given birth to the first known baby with COVID-19 antibodies from a vaccine. Here's the context. For months, researchers have observed babies with COVID antibodies because their mothers were infected with COVID. But doctors believe this is the first case of a baby being born with COVID antibodies from a vaccine. In this case, the baby's mother received the Moderna vaccine several weeks before giving birth. Since vaccines were approved in the US, pregnant women have received mixed messages about whether or not to get the shot. 
But when we spoke to the CDC director a few weeks ago, she told us pregnant women shouldn't worry. We know that the people who've been most eligible um, for the vaccine so far are people who are at highest risk of either exposure to the disease or of getting sick when they get it. In that context, um, pregnant women have higher risk of disease to themselves and higher risk of disease to their babies. And in that context, I would strongly encourage everyone to roll up their sleeve and get the vaccine. All right, final headline. Actually, it's more of a PSA. The IRS is pushing back the deadline to file your federal taxes from April 15th to May 17th. This is the second year in a row that the agency has moved that deadline. But we should note this doesn't apply to state tax deadlines. So be sure to check if your state's deadline has changed before you hit snooze on all your taxes for another month. What do your food and music choices say about you? On Food 52's new podcast, Counter Jam, Museum of Food and Drink founding director Peter J. Kim explores culture through food and music. You'll hear about musical legend Keyless's favorite falafel spot in NYC, Afrobeat pioneer Femi Kuti's take on Nigerian cuisine, and Chef Roy Choi's story of how a Korean bean paste destroyed a high school romance. You'll celebrate food culture, debunk stereotypes, and discover new tunes from the show's toe-tapping soundtrack. Find Counter Jam wherever you listen. We've spent a lot of time lately talking about COVID-19 right here in the U.S., but we wanted to turn our attention across the pond for a moment. Europe has been in the news lately, kind of for all the wrong reasons. Here's a snapshot. New lockdowns are ordered as a third wave of the virus sweeps through Europe. The EU's vaccination effort now heavily criticized as rollouts in independent nations like the UK and the US pull ahead. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been suspended across much of Europe over concerns about blood clots, a decision experts here are calling a disaster. So we wanted to know what's actually going on in Europe. And does it mean bad news for us here in the States? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. Europe is currently experiencing a third wave of this pandemic, which is causing a number of countries to shut back down. They're also struggling to roll out vaccines. And that slow vaccine rollout could get even slower because countries including France, Germany, and Italy are hitting pause on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Why? There are concerns that the AstraZeneca vaccine can be tied to blood clots, which have caused at least two deaths so far. If that sounds like a big deal, bear in mind 17 million people have reportedly already received it. And AstraZeneca, the WHO, and European regulators are all saying not to worry. There's no link between the shot and those concerns. Still, EU countries were scrambling before the drama about AstraZeneca. And now they're even looking to an unlikely source, Russia, for alternative vaccines, despite some health worries and diplomatic tension. Now, two of the countries who hit pause originally are reversing course, but that doesn't mean public trust in the AstraZeneca vaccine hasn't already been eroded. As for whether the US could end up in a similar situation, the answer is probably not. The AstraZeneca vaccine could get approved in the US as soon as next month, but with three vaccines already available in the country and a rollout that's ramping up, health officials here will likely be keeping a close watch on the data and possibly what's going on in Europe before making any decisions. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? 
send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Chances are you've heard immigration come up a lot this week. Each day, more come. And there's a big influx of people coming from Central America. The situation at the border is increasingly challenging. President Biden has ordered FEMA to help with the unprecedented number of unaccompanied minors. Some children are now being held in detention centers and even tents. The president is facing growing pressure from within his own party. The situation at the U.S.-Mexico border is looking like an early political test for President Biden. Though, depending on who you ask, the crisis is either about the fact that immigrants are trying to come to the U.S., period. The Biden administration losing complete control of the surge of migrants rushing our southern border. Or about the fact that the conditions they encounter when they get to the border are unacceptable. Children claim they never saw the sun, rarely had a chance to shower or go outside. So this week, we wanted to look at what's really going on at the border and try to answer three questions. First, is there actually an immigration crisis right now? And how so? Second, two months into the Biden presidency, has immigration policy really changed that much? And finally, what's gonna happen next? All right, first question. Is there actually an immigration crisis right now? We'll start dropping statistics in a minute, but first, we wanted to hear from someone who covers immigration up close and personal. My name is Valerie Gonzalez, and I'm a staff writer for The Monitor. It's a newspaper in the Rio Grande Valley. We're at the very bottom of, of the tip of Texas. We're all like border communities down here. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a topic that doesn't necessarily leave the foreground for us. We asked Gonzalez to walk us through the last few months and take us back to the moment she realized the immigration situation was starting to get more serious. The Hidalgo County Sheriff's Office had a meeting in January, early January, when Border Patrol started to see more smuggling events, so more human smuggling events in this area of Hidalgo County. The ranchers, they have an association, and they also started realizing that there were more incursions on their properties. So ever since then, that's been something that the community has noticed, but also law enforcement has been tracking. In the months since ranchers and law enforcement first started noticing a lot more people crossing the border overall, the situation has only intensified. But Gonzalez says exactly who is trying to make it to the U.S. has also changed. Some of the numbers that I've been placing a lot of interest in are the number of children in custody in the Rio Grande Valley Border Patrol sector. Our overall custody capacity, according to the source that we've been hearing from, is about 700. So that's 700, everybody included, you know, adults, families, children, and those are with COVID restriction. As of today, I believe they had about 4,200 in custody. And some time ago, I want to say it was about last week, I believe they had well, over half of them were children. It's risky to generalize what's happening along the entire U.S.-Mexico border based on what's going on in a single place, like the Rio Grande Valley. But what Gonzalez has been observing locally is backed up by national statistics, an increase in overall immigration and a rise in the number of unaccompanied children held in U.S. custody. According to the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Agency, the U.S. is on pace to hit a 20-year high in the number of border apprehensions. On Wednesday, CBS News reported that 13,000 unaccompanied children are currently in U.S. custody, 
If confirmed, that number would be more than triple the number of unaccompanied children being held just a few days ago. So short answer to question one, is there a crisis at the US-Mexico border? Yeah, though whether you call it an immigration crisis or a humanitarian one depends on who you ask. Which brings us to our second question. Has something actually changed about US immigration policy since Biden came into office? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. But it's important to note, a court ruling in the final months of the Trump administration and worsening conditions in the countries people are leaving are also playing a role. Gonzalez says, we can look at two main US policies that can help explain what we're seeing. The first is a Trump administration policy called MPP, or Migrant Protection Protocols. The Migrant Protection Protocol was a program that forced asylum seekers back into Mexico to wait for the US court hearings for months, years at a time. A lot of Central Americans who were entering the country at the time were forced into that program and therefore were not allowed into the United States. So we saw that stopping a lot of people from coming in or, or, or discouraging them. Right after taking office, President Biden stopped enrolling new people into MPP. So that's one major Trump policy to limit immigration that's now gone, though other policies are still in place. When COVID started and, and the CDC order was issued granting authority for border enforcement officers like Border Patrol agents to expel immigrants from the country as soon as they came in, it's known as Title 42. Title 42 really had a big role in reducing and keeping those numbers low because as soon as they would come in, they would just be expelled back into Mexico. Because of a court ruling in November, the policy isn't being applied to unaccompanied children, which could partially explain why more kids are ending up in U.S. government custody at the border. Though we should point out Title 42 remains in effect, and the Biden administration says it's still using the policy to send families and single adults back to Mexico. Even still, Gonzalez says the suspension of MPP and Biden's decision to let some people into the U.S. after previously having to wait in Mexico is changing how immigrants are thinking about the risks and rewards of coming to the U.S. They could put with their neighbors who left to the United States. So I, I think that if they see that migrant families are being released into the U.S. and they didn't see that happening before, they think that they may qualify for that as well. Gonzalez says, based on her reporting, there are a lot of reasons people leave their home countries that have nothing to do with one change in U.S. policy. I think that COVID had a big part in making more people more desperate for a better place. And that, coupled with the hurricanes that Central America experienced, have made people more desperate to find a safer place for their children, a place where they can find a more economic stability and opportunity, I think that has encouraged them to come to the U.S. But they are also hearing messages from smugglers who want to profit from the situation and, and have been, if you, if you, if you, if you could say, uh, from a business point of view, hurting for that business since you know, MPP and other Trump policies effectively closed the borders to asylum seekers, to their clients, they have been taking advantage of the situation. Gonzalez says migrants are sometimes told by smugglers, hey, the U.S. is ready to welcome you, only for them to arrive at the border and realize that's not exactly the case. When they get to the border, of course, they kind of realize that there's nuances, right? 
So the answer to question two, have there been any changes to U.S. immigration policy that could be leading to an increase in migration? The answer here is also yes, though it's complicated. And in some ways, the perception that there's been a major shift in policy may be more important than whether any major shifts have actually occurred. Which brings us to our final question. What's going to happen next? The answer here is still taking shape, though we've seen a lot of attention being paid to this issue in the last few days. On Tuesday, President Biden tried to set things straight in an interview with ABC News. I can say quite clearly, don't come, don't leave your town or city or community. But that probably won't be enough to stop the spike in political attacks coming Biden's way. Republican politicians have been using the hashtag Biden border crisis to criticize the president and are likely to make immigration part of their campaign strategy for the midterm elections. Back in Texas, Gonzalez says that the way the immigration crisis has become politicized could make it tricky to come up with any major fixes. As far as meaningful long-term solutions to the immigration problem, or rather the immigration system, um, then I think that that there has to be some cooperation between the parties, uh, although there doesn't seem to be a lot of cooperation between the parties. She also told us, while she's seen members of Congress coming to the border lately, there's only been one bipartisan group of visitors, and she doesn't expect to see many more. Christy DePena, the vice president of policy at the Niskanen Center, a Washington, D.C. think tank, is a tiny bit more hopeful. I'm... I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic. Based on some of the conversations that, that we had with both Republicans and Democrats on this issue, even during the Trump administration, demonstrated to me that people do see a need to revisit some of these policies in a thoughtful and pragmatic way. Right as we were about to publish this, the U.S. House of Representatives was getting ready to vote on a pair of immigration bills. One would create a pathway to citizenship for dreamers who came to the U.S. as children, while the other would do the same for seasonal farm workers. But it's not expected that either bill can pass the Senate, which might leave smaller, targeted fixes to address the most glaring holes in the U.S. immigration system as the only ones we could actually see. It seems to me to be a no-brainer that we need processing centers in the United States, particularly dedicated to children. And we need to think about the services that we offer them in a very comprehensive way. And Biden seems to want to do this. This week, his administration told FEMA, the agency we usually see helping out after natural disasters, to head to the border and help process and find shelter for unaccompanied minors. DePena says the government will need all the help it can get. One of the, the reasons that it, it's especially problematic is because our infrastructure on the border is so outdated that we, we literally don't have the physical space to process people. Our physical capacity to do so just is, is so low, and we just don't have the right people in place to particularly handle children, and, and especially vulnerable children. And longer term, even if major immigration reform is off the table, DePena hopes slightly less controversial issues, like hiring more immigration judges to address a backlog of asylum claims, can still get addressed. Meanwhile, back in Texas, Gonzalez says the attitude is, feel free to debate immigration reform all you want in Washington, but in the meantime, we still need a hand. Local communities are still shouldering this responsibility and they want help trying to find something, some relief for them now is, is critical as their budgets continue to be strained by the pandemic. 
the things that matter to the people down here is, you know, getting a solution and leaving the politics out. Recently, you may have heard a lot about these. NFTs, or non-fungible tokens. And also this new trend. Sports card collecting is on the rise. And don't forget about GameStop, Dogecoin, Wall Street Bet, SPAC. The blank check bonanza, or SPAC-a-palooza. SPAC, 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 SPAC. If you can't tell, there have been a lot of investment crazes recently. 2021 has been marked by unusual financial trends, from people paying thousands for Pokemon cards to college kids buying stocks of dying companies, to people even buying cryptocurrencies that were started as a joke. To make sense of why so many new and non-traditional investments are getting so much hype, we called up Rachel Lerman. I'm a tech reporter at The Washington Post. Lerman told us a lot of these crazes have taken off because of the pandemic. People are stuck at home. I think some people, right, are having a much more financially stable pandemic than others. We're, of course, seeing people who have lost their jobs, who are having incredibly tough years. Those people still might be getting stimulus checks or unemployment checks and might be trying to think of a way to invest that money so that they're able to feel a little bit more secure. But some people, maybe people who are able to work from home, maybe people who didn't lose their jobs are still getting paid. Maybe they're going out less. Maybe they're spending less money on other things. So they actually are ending up with more money than they had before. They're staying at home. They're spending a lot of time on the internet. That's where they're finding ideas for investing their money that are a lot more interesting than traditional stocks and bonds, including things that possess nostalgia. Take the example of NFTs, or non-fungible tokens. And don't worry, if you're wondering WTF is an NFT, we're about to explain. It's a digital asset, basically. It's kind of like a file. The kinds of files that are being turned into NFTs? Everything from digital artwork to music albums and even tweets. In a world of GIFs, or GIFs, JPEGs, and MP3s, collectors want to be able to say, I own that. These NFTs have recently made headlines because they've been raking in a lot of cash. Like an NFT from the artist Beeple, which sold for $69 million last week. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet, meanwhile, is currently on the auction block for $2.5 million. NFTs may be a new thing to invest in, but Lerman told us many of today's investment crazes actually are blasts from the past. I think that people are really interested in those because there's something cool, right? There's something nostalgic. There's something classic about buying a piece of art. And we'd see this as well with GameStop. GameStop was like a really familiar place, a mall shop, a place where many people remember having happy memories and buying their games. We see it with trading cards for baseball, for Pokemon are going wild online right now. I think in like moments of crisis and uncertainty, we like to cling to what is familiar and what is kind of safe and warm. So while we can chalk up some of these larger investment trends to the pandemic and just being inside and online a lot more, it's also worth noting that you're hearing about these trends because it's not just Wall Street getting in on the action. 
part of the kind of hype about these things is that it's intended in some way to democratize the financial markets, right? Like we saw with GameStop, for example, we saw these Reddit forums just kind of go wild with people who were like, oh my gosh, you know, this is a way for me, like a normal person, not a stockbroker, not the manager of a hedge fund to get involved with this. And I think that we've seen varying levels of success there. So many people lost money, but a lot of people made money as well. And it was these kind of like normal people, right? And so I think that that spurred people to kind of say, oh, how can I get a piece of this? What can I get involved in? And that means a lot more people are going online for advice. A lot of people are finding out about these things from like Reddit, maybe even from TikTok or YouTube. It's also been interesting because I am on Twitter all the time, presumably for work, but also because it's possible I'm slightly addicted to Twitter. And we see that these crazes are being hyped and promoted by well-followed and prestigious people. Elon Musk is one of these people who has been a big Bitcoin stan and tweeted about the GameStop stuff. He's either like the first or second richest person in the world on any given day. But he also controls his own Twitter account. I do think that he has quite a lot of followers who look up to him and see him as sort of, I don't know if approachable is the right word, but as sort of like a kindred spirit rather than unattainable. And because the internet and the pandemic aren't going away anytime soon. I do think that we're, we've been seeing more and more of uh, people wanting to, in some way, democratize the financial market. So I think that in some form, we're likely to see this continue. Maybe not in these sort of wild crazes. In the meantime, for all your money questions, including the breakdown of these new investment trends when they happen, head on over to theskim.com slash money. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Skim.